नमस्ते एवरीवन वेलकम टू द चार बुक पॉडकास्ट दिस इज योर होस्ट कुशल मेहरा टुडे वी आर गोइंग टू बी टॉकिंग अबाउट अनदर बुक द बुक इज कॉल्ड द बुक ऑफ वाउस द महाभारत ट्रिलॉजी एंड आई हैव द ऑथर ऑफ द बुक विद मी अमित मजुमदार अमित वेलकम थैंक्स फॉर कमिंग थैंक यू वेरी मच फॉर हैविंग मी आई एम थ्रिल्ड सो अमित दिस इज योर फर्स्ट टाइम ऑन द पॉडकास्ट सो आई विल रिक्वेस्ट यू टू मे बी वी कैन स्टार्ट ओवर हियर कैन यू टेल एवरीबॉडी अ लिटिल बिट अबाउट योरसेल्फ योर बैकग्राउंड योर जर्नी Sure. Yeah. Um, my name is Amit Majmdar. I was uh, born and raised in the United States, but uh, for about a year and a half, I we moved back to India. So I did second uh, second standard and third standard in India, uh, in Ahmedabad, India. But other then we just came right back to Ohio, and I've lived in Ohio my whole life. And uh, I'm a poet, a novelist. uh an essayist i also translated the gita uh and uh my most recent uh book that i published in india i published different bodies of work in america and in india and my most recent uh book in india is this this one the book of vows which is the first volume in a three part retelling of uh the mahabharat um and uh in my day job i i work as a uh diagnostic radiologist um and uh that's basically that's basically what i do and who i am now that's a lot of work uh being a diagnostic radiologist in the day and then uh, translating the bhagavad gita now how did you manage that um it, do you mean from like a time management kind of perspective or Yeah, man. So where where did you learn? Did you where did you learn Sanskrit? Because I mean, how did you yeah. go so, about so the translation process? For me, Sanskrit is not it's not something that I speak very well. It's something that's very textually oriented, uh, and so I just used a lot of textual resources, um, you know, textbooks. My wife took Sanskrit in college, so I had her syllabi and everything like that. So um, I just went word by word by word uh, for years through the Gita. looking up etymologies and um just basically making a research project out of each and every word and then um that's basically how i engaged with that text uh to create the translation uh and then i i basically spend a lot of time ever since i was probably 12 13 years old i just spend a lot of time reading all the time and writing and and so that's how i kind of got interested in and i i've always been interested in in the indian traditions uh, the the hindu tradition uh literary tradition poetic tradition uh, and philosophical traditions and so um that's kind of been side by side with my love of of literature in general um and so it's basically what i do with my free time so i do a lot of work you know for radiology and everything like that but all almost all of my free time is not you know i don't i don't watch sports a lot i don't watch movies very much i don't watch tv very much i'm just like very drilled down like very focused on on literary stuff so uh, so the biggest question when it comes to translations we'll get into the book uh, they mm-hmm. always say is that oh oh you're not qualified under blah 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 right. the thing or you're not trained under a uh a university in india like a, right. a like a proper school sanskrit school in india so how do you respond to those those kinds right of- so i think that there are different ways that we can define qualification and uh for certainly from some people's perspective i'm just a guy off the street who made you know a several years long study of the gita and there's no real 
authority um, or guru or anybody who sort of taught me. And the, the, the volume that that is, it's God's song, it has a commentary as well. And really what, um, what by what authority do, do, does one even write a commentary on the Gita, right? Um, and at the same time, you can say that, well, different translators uh, bring different qualifications to the task. So most of the translations that I've come across, they're written by people for whom English language, like the traditions of English language poetry are either alien or not even part of their mindset. So it'll be like a prose translation. But, um, you, you know, my translation, it's into verse. It's into a very faithful verse. A lot of times I replicate the word order. I replicate alliteration. I replicate sonic elements. And those are calculations that frequently uh, translators who are translating into a treatise-like prose aren't going to even think about. Um, and then, then there's a question of, um, of study, right, and, and abhyas. And all of that is something that uh, you can, you know, it can be something that if you are doing it in a very, very curricularized format, in the end, it's something that is uh, pre-existing. And I think I value every individual's unique experience of the Gita. And so if someone else who has no formal training in Indian philosophy or um, the Gita or, you know, uh, you know, some specific sampradaya has their ideas on the Gita, I'm actually interested in that because I think that everyone's, you know, experience brings them to a point. And then, you know, how does the Gita engage with that particular life, engage with that particular background. Someone who's not from India, someone who's from, you know, maybe grew up in the United States like myself, someone might have grown up in Britain or, or Europe or Australia or anywhere. Um, Non-Indians. I, I love talking to non-Indian Hindus about their experience of Hinduism or the experience of the Gita. These are all very fascinating backgrounds and fascinating ways in which people approach it from differing different origins, you know, and there's no one authoritative uh, engagement with it. And I think that's something that's valuable in its own right. So now let's come to the current trilogy. Obviously, we're going to talk about one part one of the trilogy, mm -hmm. the Book of Vows. Now, now, how did you come up with the idea of writing this trilogy? Well, I've always been very interested, as I said, in poetry, and that's been a lifelong love of mine. Um, most of people think of poetry, they think of like a one or two page kind of poem that talks about, you know, personal, uh, you know, subjective states, emotional states. Um, but from the very beginning, I was in love with epic poetry and dramatic poetry, the kind of older forms of poetry where it was married to storytelling. And I was always very fascinated by how verse and poetry and the, the poetic art could dovetail with storytelling. And, and so I was intimidated by the text of the Mahabharata for a very long time because it's so, it's so vast, right? It's so huge. Yeah. It's not like the Iliad. It's not like the Odyssey. I think the Iliad and the Odyssey are, um, they're, they're very tiny elements of the larger Homeric cycle, the larger mythological world of the Trojan War, everything before it, everything after it, and during it. Um, and so I mostly stuck with a lot of Western epics. Um, as time went on, I felt that, you know, I, I know the story of the Mahabharata, but I'm always getting it secondhand, whether it's from the television or someone else's retelling. 
Um, and I felt that I wanted to engage with Vyasa. I, I, I didn't read this in the original Sanskrit or anything. I read a variety of translations and abridgments of the original text. And as I, as I, as I explored the epic in its original form, a lot of my preconceived ideas about the original text vanished and they were replaced with a differing way of looking at it. And as those revelations came to me, I felt compelled to give it form and to create a work of art in English, in contemporary English, that reflected some of the things that I was seeing and experiencing um, in Vyasa. So, so let's talk about translations. Now, once again, when we, when we have this uh, translation uh, subject, right? So I'm someone who reads religious texts a lot. I've read the Mahabharata, I've read the Ramayana, I've read multiple translations myself. I've been like, doing this for a while. I started reading religion, uh, a religion at the age of 20, 21. Mm -hmm. started reading Hindu texts uh, at the age of 23, 24. And mm -hmm. since then, you know, I've spent years reading these texts and I always try to use multiple translations. Now, my point mm -hmm. of view is that uh, would knowing Sanskrit at a fluent level uh, be the best option where you read the text in Sanskrit and then that's when you get uh, the meaning? Yes, I understand that point of view. Mm -hmm. But uh, to say that, oh, you will never understand a text by reading a translation because there could be nuances, I think that's a little bit of a cop-out. Yes, ideal state is ideal state. But if you read two, three translations or four translations, you can actually get a very significant chunk of what the text means to say and that's why you read multiple translations because uh, what happens is the intention of the author translating also creeps into the text and the subtitle sure. they belong to uh, right. also matters or sometimes you know the translator might be a marxist and they will have their marxist dogma okay. in the translation itself now in your case which translations did you uh, refer to and how did you check for these biases you know i think that uh I, first of all, I agree with basically everything that you said. Uh, and I think that I have a very, very deep relationship to, for example, Greek and Latin literature, which I've been reading for years, for decades, really. And I've never read those in the original. Uh, in the original. I just read different translations of them. Um, the ones that I read for uh, Ma the Mahabharata were primarily two, which was uh, John Smith's uh, uh, version. Uh, for Penguin Classics, that uh, translates about, I think it translates a percentage of the text. It's an, it's an abridgment as well as a translation, and it kind of summarizes the parts that he abridges. Um, he, he didn't strike me as having much of an ideological axe to grind. I can usually tell when someone does from the way, from well, first of all, from their introductions, it usually becomes very evident. Um, but, uh, you know, that was a pretty good one. Um, Bibik Debroy uh, has translated in multiple volumes. Um, this is that's the entire thing. And then there's uh, 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 Narasimhan, CV Narasimhan, which is a, a much shorter um, version, also an abridgment. And um, you know those are those are the ones that I've in, in, uh, that I accessed to basically get the story straight, get the character straight and get the um get the feel and i do feel like uh you know in the end everyone is going to have their own engagement with the epic um and i don't i don't 
think that there's any one exhaustive or all-encompassing telling possible of it, just because there's so much subject subjective encounter involved with the epic. But I, I definitely um, have created, uh, you know, in the in the trilogy, I've created a work that kind of reflects my personal, uh, you know, encounter with the epic for sure. So, so were there specific instances when you read these multiple translations where you had these moments where, wow, they mean different things? And how did you navigate those moments, if you don't mind me asking? Um, no, I, I don't I don't feel like there were um, really divergences among those among those versions, to be honest with you. Um, I feel like most of the divergences that I experienced were between my pre-existing notions of the epic and pre-existing notions of the characters that were basically either, you know, false in some way or or idealized in some way um, that did not track to how the characters were in in the in Vyasa, it's or, or in their sort of original or earliest um, expressions textually in the textual record. So now let's get into <laughs> why should one read the Mahabharat? It's such a long, 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 long text. I mean, just by the sheer volume of pages, uh, if one, right. one, you know, if I was to, I would never recommend someone to start with the Mahabharat because they will never read anything Hindu then. Uh, <laughs> you should start with something smaller, a shorter text. Maybe the Bhagavad Gita is a great starting point. Mm -hmm. Then you could maybe jump into something longer then maybe you can read a few Upanishads you know the principal Upanishads mm -hmm. the 10 or 14 principal Upanishads and then because the Mahabharata the, the sheer volume of the Mahabharata right, right. The, the number of pages the number of shlokas then right. the translations and then the subsequent commentaries associated with the right. Mahabharata it can be very intimidating to an average person to an average Hindu or to an average person who's even non-Hindu for that matter right so uh, <laughs> why did you decide to take the biggest text so, so I think that it's, and I talk about this in the introduction uh, that I have for this first volume. Um, you know, the so like the Iliad and the Odyssey are individual episodes from the larger Homeric cycle, and the Homeric cycle actually included about a dozen epics by different hands that dealt with, you know, the run up to uh, Paris's abduction of Helen that included various adventures during the, the siege of Troy that included the homegoing uh, sort of um, the, the, the attempts to go home on the part of the various warriors after the war. So it wasn't just Odysseus's story. They all, you know, Ajax had, Ajax had his own uh, epic and, and, you know, different, different characters had their own epics in the ancient, you know, Greek corpus of the Homeric cycle. And the Mahabharata is basically the entire, it's as if you took the entire Homeric cycle and regarded it as one thing. And that's why you have everything that goes from Satyavati and Shantanu and all of these characters all the way down to um, the aftermath uh, of the, uh, the Yadavas having their mutual slaughter and the death of Krishna and the Pandavas going to, uh, and Yudhishthira taking his dog uh, with him to heaven. Uh, or trying to take his dog with him to heaven, that everything is there. Everything is there in the Mahabharata. And I think that um, that's what makes it so intimidating. And I think that if you took all of the Homeric 
uh, cycle epics and put them in, in one book, it would be very intimidating as well. Um, the initial way in which I tried to write the Mahabharata, because I kind of contemplated a long time, you know, how to, how to do it. The initial way I tried to do it was actually to take individual episodes and create Homeric style epics that focused in just on, say, the, the encounter between Arjuna and Karna, right? Or another one where based on, you know, uh, there's this old Sanskrit play called the Urubhanga, which is about Duryodhan after he gets his thighs shattered. And then, you know, you can take that one moment and drill down on it and expand it and have an entire, have, have much of the epic told um, through flashbacks and encounters and this and that relative to one particular event. But it didn't work. And the reason it didn't work is because the Mahabharata, unlike you know some other, unlike you know some of the simpler epics of the West, like the Song of Roland or Beowulf um, or the Poem of the Cid, the Mahabharata is this densely networked uh, story. Okay, and I think that all the curses, boons, vows that are made a, a, along the course of the epic they end up having these direct you know, results and encounters on, the, on Kurukshetra to, at the end, at the climactic battle, uh, at the climactic war. And so I felt that I had to basically do it, do it all, do it whole. And, um, and that's why I engaged with the, the whole epic to see the networking, to tease out you know, the, the lines of force from beginning to end. And then create a, a version of the epic where it was it was um, efficiently told, told in a way that was, um, in my opinion, you know, true to the complexity of it, but at the same time, in a size and mode and, and feel that is something that's accessible to both Indians and non-Indians reading in English. Um, because I am, I am an American and it is kind of something that I, you know, I do keep it both an Indian audience in mind, but I also keep an American audience in mind. And that's why, you know, the, uh, in the book itself, I have these, uh, these summaries before, you know, so every, before every set of chapters, I'll have like a summary uh, sequence where I'll have like sequence one, how Bhishma and Vyasa come to be. And then I'll, I'll explain what is going to come over the next few chapters. And I'll talk about and I'll list the characters who are going to show up again. And I keep this very orderly for non-Hindu readers, non-Indian readers. I think that um, it's easy to take take a certain amount of knowledge for granted. But uh, and, and I try to avoid doing that so that it could be something that people who know the epic can enjoy. But at the same time, people who are unfamiliar with the epic can, can get into it. And if they lose their place or they put it down and come back, they can find. They can sort of follow the sequence. They can follow the summaries up to the point where they are, and then continue reading again. Maybe we can drill down on the subject of differences between cultures, and when, as a writing style, you have to incorporate both these. So, so could you explain that with an example or something like how 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 would let's say an average American? Now, I understand where you're coming from is because I myself live in America and Canada for five months every year. Now, mm -hmm. I understand how people perceive certain words very differently over there culturally in comparison to over here. But like, what were these uh, things that you have to keep in mind when you wrote this book? Like, are there any instances like that? Um, you know, I think from a creative standpoint, 
it's not necessarily uh, a micromanaged thing. It's not like when you're when you're creating it, it's not as though you're 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 mentally uh, thinking to yourself, uh, okay, would someone who is unfamiliar with the epic, who is of this background, understand this particular reference? I think that when you, when you you as a as a as a writer, when you have an audience in mind. Um, all of those decisions happen almost at a subconscious level. So it's a little bit hard for me to pinpoint exactly how my notion of wanting to write an epic that is accessible to uh, both Hindus and non-Hindus, Indians and non-Indians, directly affects the nitty gritty of the story. But I can tell you that if I, that um, a lot of what it involves is not taking things for granted and not taking knowledge for granted. Um, and so it's easy for when, when we say Krishna, it's very easy for us to mentally have an image of a very charming and handsome uh, and an attractive uh, person who has a certain way of interacting with people, who has a certain wit and a certain charm and a certain sublimity and all of that, right? And what I've noticed in retellings is that a lot of times it doesn't come out in how he speaks. It doesn't come out in the subtleties of interactions because we take it for granted when you say Krishna and you have you you mentally think of a certain way that even his lines are delivered. So in the book of vows, you know, when Krishna shows up, when when he when he has interactions, I try and bring some of that wit, some of that tightness, some of that epigrammatic tightness, some of that charm um, into the descriptions and into the dialogue. And so it's that sort of that it happens more at that level rather than a you know a specific micro decision of this or that. It's it's more of a global thing. And I think Duryodhan's another example of that. Like you have to have his speech be, you know, have his speech be a little, you know, you, you just kind of have to, you have to always remember that the word Duryodhan may not mean to a stranger what it means to you from, it means to me or you because of our familiarity, if that makes sense. Mm hmm yeah, that would be a very interesting case when you somebody reads your uh, summary and they're not from an Indian background and they've not read the Mahabharat mm -hmm. and they, they kind of start liking some of the characters that we don't like. That would be a very interesting conversation to have. You know what? I But I'll tell you that I tell you one thing I, I really like about the Mahabharat is that, you know, a lot of characters, they, they have redeeming qualities and they have this ambiguous, you know, they have a lot of the characters have and you know characters that you would like and then things you would dislike and it's like that in real life with people right and and i th i thought that was a wonderful thing a wonderful element of the epic really is that uh you know karna even duryodhan duryodhan's the first person that you know yudhishthir sees in heaven right so it's it's uh it's uh, i like the ambiguities of the epic i like the contradictions of the characters um and you know there are points where you know where you know Duryodhan's complaining about Krishna and it, it's kind of like you kind of see his perspective you know you, you can see his perspective um and and so I, I, that's one of the things that I like about you know the ep this particular epic is that it's not necessarily you know el you know uh, hobbits and orcs you know what i'm saying it's not necessarily pure good versus evil and i and i think that's a very heroic age ethos to it yeah, why call it the Book of Vows? Um, it's because that's one of the it's one of the main um, 
thematic through lines of this portion of the epic, beginning with Bhishma's vow, and then there's a whole bunch of, you know, there's various other vows that occur over the course of the epic that culminate in the vows that are taken after the dice game and, after, and it, as, as the Pandavas are going into exile, right? So, um, you know, B, you know, Beam makes a vow about, you know, I'm going to do, I'm going to break that thigh that you, you kind of clapped your, your, your thigh and Dropadi's like, I'm not going to bind up my hair until I'm avenged. And um, all the different Pandavas make various vows as they're leaving. And the, and the Kauravas are kind of mocking them as they're going. And, uh, and so the book of vows, it sort of, the main action begins with Bhishma's vow, um, you know, to, to relinquish, his inheritance and it relinquished the throne and and uh not marry and and then and that's at the beginning of the book of vows and then in the and at the end of the book of vows the the book of vows ends after the dice game and as the pandas are going to exile and so um and they're so it ends with them making those vows as well and so that it's kind of bookended by vows in fact you know why i was fascinated and let me explain why i asked you this question so in the book you start by saying everything begins with a vow. Words were everything back then. Honor, self-discipline, intensity, power. You said your will out loud. I'm going to do this. Once you said it, your will was out in the open. All the worlds and all the universes, all the gods and all the goddesses, all your ancestors and all your descendants compared what you said uh, you would do with what you did. Are you as good as your word or aren't you? You could break the vow, but you could simply you couldn't unsay it. Now, let me explain where I come from. I'm born and raised in India. Yes, I have lived in the West. I live partially in the West. But there is a significant difference between Indian culture and Western culture. I come from a business background. Um, there is something about India and the West that is even today very different. It's not like India is not a democracy which does not have courts or police or everything. But listen, uh, the level of law and order in India is not uh, where we would say the level of law and order is in the West, right? So India, even today, and it's in a very funny way, in Hindi, we have this word where we say, Zaban ki hoti hai. the tongue has a value. Mm -hmm. That Let's say if I was getting into a business deal with someone and I would tell that person, listen, uh, you know, I'm going to start working with you. When will you pay me? And... That person would say, sir, I'll pay you in 30 days. Sometimes it gets late. Sometimes it might get early. And you manage around that. Now, in mm -hmm. India, you know why the Book of Vows and why this is very important is because how Indian society is even today. So where in my trade, or old trade, now I'm a podcaster in textiles, you know how it used to be is in Kalva Devi in Mumbai. It's a big textile market. If somebody mm -hmm. was a defaulter who would dishonor his vows, who would dishonor his commitments, there was a big board in Kalva Devi that would say, this person is a defaulter. Do not do business with him. Mm. And it's not that that's not how they do it in the West, right? In the mm. West, you sue the person, you go to the courts, the courts right. are, you know, do mm. the decision. Now that that is such a gigantic difference between the two cultures. And when I was reading your book, and when I started reading this, the first thing that came to my mind is this. Now, uh, how important how would a Westerner react to this? A, a Westerner living today who says, Hey, if you didn't honor, I would 
sue you. Maybe in in let's say in America down south, maybe people would understand the uh, the, the 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 value of vows because if you look at uh, anthropological and social science literature, they say the south is more a culture of honor in comparison uh, to right. the other parts. Right. Yeah. You you know it's it's you you you. I love that. I love that contrast, and I love that uh, that experience um, because that's another that's a world that I'm not familiar with. So I love hearing about it. Um, you know, I think that uh, I I do agree with you about the the South having more of an honor culture. But you know, the the question is, I guess. Um, whether what your what your your experiences in the business world necessarily translate to the interpersonal experiences of Americans within their particular you know communities, right? And I feel as though what you're referring to is related to this in a business context, but the norms related to business in America do go through the legal system, whereas the the notion the interpersonal aspect of you know can i trust this person's word is this guy a man of his word can i trust him or or her you know if someone says that they're going to be here or do this with me at a certain time a certain place can i trust them to show up um if someone says that you know they're gonna you know help me out in this way and you know can i rely on them or not that's a very universal thing in, in my opinion and it doesn't necessarily have to do with honor culture or lack of honor culture or business practices, I think it's a very, very universal element of human interactions of, is this person, is this person's word trustworthy or not? And in my experience, I've lived basically my whole life in the United States, other than I mentioned for a year and a half, we, I moved to India. We moved to India when I was a kid and we came right back to the exact same place in, 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 uh, in, in Ohio. Um, there's not that much of a difference um, culturally uh, between Americans that I've I've you know grown up among and live among um, and Indians where you know at the interpersonal level uh, you know someone being as good as their word um, is 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 a plus and it is highly regarded and it and it, it 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 fosters trust it fosters friendship it it I mean all those things are universal in my opinion. Fair enough. I, I do understand where you're coming from, but uh, this is something in my own personal journey when I live live here and in the West, I find this mm -hmm. contrast very obvious. Where mm -hmm. over there, if the book says so, you just do it. Mm -hmm. it it's that kind of a culture. Well, that's just mm -hmm. the rule. So I do it. And over mm -hmm. here, it's a very different thing. It's always constantly jostling with uh, the reality around you, uh, mm -hmm. working around that. But now I want to jump into probably one of the most interesting uh, titles of, uh, because you have a lot of chapters, right? You have small chapters that you've broken down, mm -hmm. 20 plus uh, chapters that you've uh, mm -hmm. written it uh, in the book. Now, mm -hmm. The Perils of Marrying a River. Now, that's a very interesting uh, title that you have mm -hmm. chosen for a chapter. So let's mm -hmm. talk about that. So what are the perils of marrying a river? Well, I think, you know, if the, uh, so at, <clears throat> so in the, uh, uh, at one point, um, you know, there's, so it has to do with, well, there's a whole story related to that, which has to do with, um, you know, uh, uh, basically there are these eight Vasus, right? And so then uh, Bhishma is, is one of them. 
and they are cursed to take birth. And so then um, the, the Ganga basically uh, agrees to take form and then bear them and then drown them. And then that way their, their time on earth is as, as short as possible. And so she tells her husband, you know, I'm going to do, you know, don't ask where I go after, after, after the birth. And he, he, he holds out, he holds out for a long time. But then when that last, that last one, he can't do it. He can't hold out. And he basically does what it's kind of like in a fairy tale where you're asked to do that one thing you're not supposed to do. And, and everything would be okay. If you just looked away, you didn't do what you're supposed to do. You, you, did, you did what you were told not to do. Um, but then that's precisely what they have, what that character has to do. And so he does, he confronts her. And then, then that's basically why Bhishma survives. Um, he, uh, and he's, you know, he's not drowned. And then she takes him sort of into the celestial, she takes him to celestial spheres to be trained and then brings him back down, um, you know, years later. And, uh, and that's basically the perils of marrying a, a river is that she's going to drown your, uh, your first seven children. <laughs> yeah, not, uh, not a fun, fun fact. Now, when you talk about rivalries in your book, right? Uh, I think this was chapter 10. It, it, uh, I could, I could be wrong about the name of the chapter, but I think, I don't exactly remember either. Um, yeah, yeah, rivalries. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So now, rivalries are a very intrinsic part of human existence, right? We we have uh, we have uh, rivals in different degrees and in different ways, going throughout our life. Now, what do you think is the biggest lesson that comes from the Mahabharat, in your in your opinion? When it comes to handling competition, I'm not talking about to, because mm -hmm. rivalries in, in in a very subtle way are also about competition, right? About mm -hmm. how do we deal yeah. with someone who's who's sharing the pizza with us, who's sharing right. the space with us, who who wants a piece of the pie, as mm -hmm. they say. So 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 how do we deal with that? How how would the Mahabharat teach us to deal with rivalries? Right. You know, that's a wonderful and, and deep question because rivalry in the end is, is one of the, you know, really uh, strong through lines of, of the epic, right? Um, everyone knows about, you know, the Pandavas and Gauravas is the main element, but then even within that, there are individual rivalries, Arjuna and Karna, um, Bhim and Duryodhan. Um, there's also, you know, the rivalries uh, of, uh, I guess, in Indraprastha and Hastinapur. There's also the, um, there's just, and, and then also you can, if you look at the actual um, time before the Pandavas and Gauravas are born, there's a rivalry sort of between uh, Kunti and uh, uh, Gandhari, right? And so, and there's also a, a rivalry of sorts between uh Pandu and Dhritarashtra, because Dhritarashtra is blind, and then uh, and 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 Pandu. So there's there's all of this all of this rivalry going on, and I think that one of the you know it's it's hard to distill it down to a single lesson, but one of the things that I'll just point out relative to that sort of a, a circuit you know a circuitous way of answering the question because I don't I don't I don't 
I don't know if I can necessarily distill it into a bullet point, you know, if that's what you're looking for. But you I, can take I, your time. What's that? Was you that? can take your time. You can take yeah. your time and explain it. Sure, sure. So I mean, so one of the things that I I think was very significant has to do with how, and I don't. It's not. Um, it's not in this volume. It's in the next volume that's coming out next, which is called the Book of Discoveries. Um, it has to do with the inflexibility and the desire to take it all and have it all, which um, Duryodhan exhibits at the time where, you know, in the very end, you know, they try all these negotiations and then it comes down to, hey, look, just give us five villages, right? And Krishna goes with this mission and he does all this and he tries to get these just five villages for the Pandavas, one for each Pandava. And even this uh, is refused, right? Because it's it, there's a winner-take-all mentality here on the part of the Kauravas, on the part of Duryodhan. And at that point, what's a very interesting thing is that Krishna, uh, you know, he actually tries to arrest Krishna. And then Krishna shows a very cosmic form of himself, mm -hmm. which is, so Arjuna is not the first person to see this cosmic form. It's actually Duryodhan. And he's kind of, he has, he's, he doesn't, re, he doesn't necessarily react with the same intensity as Arjuna. And I think that's actually a, uh, a significant point as well. Um, the vision is only as powerful as the recipient of the vision. But I think that that winner-take-all mentality also holds true at the dice game, which does occur in the Book of Vows. The Book of Vows kind of finishes with the dice game, where you know they're, they're goading Yudhishthira to wager more and wager more, wager still more, and he ends up wagering everything, including his own relative, his own brothers and his, his wife and everything. And this is a very, very, um, and because they want it all, and they they want to keep get, they want to keep drawing him into that gambling game, that 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 dice game, to get everything out of him. And <clears throat> this is also the winner take all mentality at play. And I think that that's one thing. And then the other thing has to do with, um, which also which does occur in the Book of Vows, is which is when they go to the you know Yudhishthira builds this beautiful hall. And this is the one of the main thing that triggers Duryodhana's en envy um, and his his sense of rivalry and his sense of being surpassed. And that involves, you know, even though this is his cousin, these are his own cousins, his own blood, he can't rejoice in their success. He cannot marvel uh, at the beauty of what they have built um, for its own sake uh, because it makes him feel inadequate. And so when it comes to rivalry, I think that the Mahabharata in its own way is kind of telling us a few things. It's telling us, you know, to try and distill it to, to a bullet point here. It's telling us don't have a winner-take-all mentality. You know, try and share and share alike and try and include the other person, have the other person, have the, have the rival and yourself, you know, win together, right? Win together. And I think that... Um, Envy is poisonous. Envy is poisonous. I think that um, when you're when you're rival, and so think of it as from a literary standpoint, right? Let's say hypothetically somebody else uh, created a retelling of the Mahabharata in three volumes and released their first volume in 2023, the same year as mine, and it was say the Book of Boons by somebody else. All right. And let's say it was genuinely better than mine. And 
Everyone loved it far more than they loved mine. It's a bestseller. They're turning into a movie. Uh, and I pick it up and I'm all skeptical and it's, and it ends up being truly beautiful and truly superior to mine in every way. At that point, you know, I have a choice. I have a choice where I can experience envy and hatred and resentment and, and anger that this person, and I can even deny, I can deny that the beauty of that other rival's book and say that he must know, or he or she must know people and they must have connections and that's why they're hyping this book so much or something like that. Or I can admire what was done. I can admire what this person created and say, look, this person created something transcendently beautiful. I tried to do it. I did the best I could do. This person did the best they could do and they did better than me. Let me learn from them. Let me internalize you know, their approach, let me, let me study their, their approaches, their techniques, their use of language, their characterization, the way they structure the story. Um, let me learn from that. And then maybe I'll become a better writer as a result. Maybe I'll write something in the future that I, in which I try to rival. Maybe I'll write a Ramayana trilogy where I try and rival this, what they did with the Mahabharata. And maybe my work will be better as a result, you know? And I think that's, that's kind of like, you know, envy is poisonous. And, and if there's a reason why, you know, why wise people were warned against it. And it's because it, it stifles your learning. It stifles your ability to see excellence where it is and then emulate it and then pursue it uh, and be inspired to outdo yourself. You know, that's, that's uh, the, the excellence of the rival should be an inspiration to outdo yourself and to improve, to level up. In, in, in a very interesting way, in your own book, you know, the answer to the rivalry chapter is the partition chapter and and if you indulge in rivalry you will end up in partition now um irony irony of ironies i don't know if again the western world will understand this the indians get it very well mm -hmm. at a at a political level at a societal level because of 1947 how mm -hmm. rivalries led to a partition and how, as a society, we still have trauma associated with the partition. Maybe the current generation that is born after the 90s or in the 2000s, they don't understand that. But definitely, kids born before the 90s definitely understand the trauma associated with these things. And it's very interesting. Again, I'm, I'm wondering how the Western world would, you know, would react to your partition chapter. Where, where the because again right you know it's a very individualistic society you're 16 your parents tell you get the hell out of the house you know go do your own thing fend for yourself inheritance is not your right in fact in a country like america if you get inheritance above x million dollars you are you're even uh, taxed for it because mm. the whole idea in in the united states of america is that's something that you've not earned it's your parents right so mm. let me the government take some chunk of it i mean i'm not uh, justifying it uh, or in any way possible because they're taxing an already taxed income in America, which I find very absurd. But the point is that that how how does one deal with this? How does one deal with partition? So uh, how would the novels about the partition of India? Just last year, I published The Map and the Scissors, which was about the rivalry between Jinnah and Gandhi. And my first novel in 2011 is was also entitled Partitions, just like that chapter. I did that on purpose. Um, and that was something that dealt more with the human impact of it. Uh, Map and the Scissors, which I published last year, um, was uh, about the political run-up to it and the rivalry between Jinnah and Gandhi. 
So I've studied the partition of India, you know, in 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 great detail, and I've written a lot about a lot of pages about it. And and uh, the pages I've published in those two novels are are a fraction of the amount I've actually written about it. So I've written a lot about it. I've also published some essays about it. Um, and <clears throat> I think that you know the 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 partitioning of uh, India was a partition that was carried out it, America almost had its own partition okay mm -hmm. and that was the United States Civil War in the yeah. 1860s and there's an alternative history where instead of you know Lincoln they they elect you know McClellan McClellan was a very very cautious general he was afraid of fighting he didn't want to lose people he kind of had notions of maybe we should just give him their own country and you know he was a, he was a very cautious kind of general and there's alternative alternative histories where you know Lincoln wasn't the man at that time the south won a bunch of initial victories against the north okay initially there's you know the battle of bull run manassas junction a few other battles uh, skirmishes the south was winning because they had the more martial culture okay they were over 60%, I think 60 or 70% of officers at West Point were actually Southerners who then went to fight for the South. Um, and so the South was looking very, was looking like a strong horse early on. And there's a, there's, there is a strong cultural memory in, a, in the United States of a sort of thwarted partition, okay? And within American discourse, even today, there is a strong streak of red state, blue state, you know, and that's not really a partition that can take place along geographic lines, simply yeah. because the, the cities are blue and the rural areas are red. Um, and that holds true in the South as well, by the way. So Birmingham, Alabama will vote blue, but everything around it will vote red. So that that partition is not something that happens at the territorial level, the way it threatened to happen in, in the 1860s. However, partition is also something that happens in the mind, right? And, and in the end, the, the geographic or political manifestations of partition are a reflection of a psychological rupture in the, in the community as a whole, in the national community as a whole. In India, this happened at the level of religion, it, you know, with Islamic nationalism and the Pakistan and the Pakistan movement uh, with Jinnah. Um, within Pakistan, it later happened at a linguistic level, okay, um, between Beng Bengali and, and, and Urdu speaking West and Bengali speaking East. The, uh, uh, the, the rupture that led to the partition of India um, could very well happen again because there is a psychological divide in the Indian psyche, which can be easily worsened over time if interested political parties decide to exacerbate it. And that's what—that's how the Pakistan movement worked. In 1937, uh, there was the Jinnah and the All India Muslim League did terribly in the legislative assembly elections. Ten years later, they successfully partitioned the country, right? Or British, the partition of the British Raj. And that happened through rallies, speeches, propaganda, and an intensification of the divide that was already at some level there. Now, in the American context, Americans are no strangers to partition mentality. 
and, and the device, the division mentality. A lot of Americans are always talking about how polarized our society is. Um, those polarizations take different forms in different countries throughout the West. Um, and, and I think, and throughout democracies in the West, I think that in, in America, because religion has, has been um, eclipsed, in religion, religious identities, state identities, I, in, in, in the Civil War, state identities were actually very, very powerful. A lot of people identified as a Virginian or an Ohioan or a New Yorker even more strongly than they identified as American. It's a very, uh, you know, it's a different world back then. But in America today, religious identities um, have been largely eclipsed. Um, mm -hmm. And in what I see personally in my own neighborhood, even racial antagonism is something that is on life support. You know, there's a lot of intermarriage. There's a lot of people who love artists and musicians of each other's races. Um, the real divide is is the uh, is the is the left right political divide. Um, for you know, that's the shorthand that we use for it. There are a lot of different elements to the left and the right that, or what we call the left and the right, that. Um, that basically uh, determine, you know, how people sort and how people mentally divide themselves off from other people. Um, so it doesn't happen at the level of religion in, in, in our country, but it does happen and it is there. Um, and I don't think it'll have geographic ramifications, but it'll have it has its it has its effects, I think. So before we wrap it up, one last question, Amit. Uh, so what was the one moment where you were writing this book? uh where you just sat back and asked yourself gosh how profound the mahabharat is is there any particular moment that you remember when you wrote that wrote this book um you know i feel like i had that feeling throughout i feel like i had that feeling throughout and i and, and looking at looking at the book of vows alone I think that if I had to think of one, give me a moment, give me a moment while I think about this. Because um, it's hard to pick just one, you know, it's hard to pick just one. I think like I, pers I personally enjoyed, like I said, I personally enjoyed the, the you know, the, the, the rivalry and partition bit from a contemporary Indian perspective, which is why I picked it up from the book. Yeah. I, I was just wondering that if you had yeah. any. So I, I understand like when yeah. you're writing the whole book, you're so immersed in the text. But yeah, right. for me, that that the contrast between the 10th chapter and I think this is like uh, later on in the book, the Raya, the mm -hmm. partition bit really stood out to me. I was like, these are such con, you know, these, this is the cause and effect kind of an emotion, emotional thing. But yeah, so I understand that when yeah. you're writing a book like this and you're analyzing, you may not have that one one moment. But yeah, as a reader, I, I did. I really have one moment. Um, I do feel that, uh, and I'm jumping ahead because this is from the third volume. Um, for me, the my favorite part of the entire process of writing it. So, so what you're, so I think the problem with when I was trying to answer your question has to do because I was focusing on the Book of Vows specifically. But if I'm if I'm thinking about the whole trilogy, I think the vision of the sons um, after the war, when Vyasa wades into the river, you know everyone's mourning and everyone's performing the funeral uh, funeral rites on the riverside, and Vyasa goes into the river and he sort of holographically projects 
the everybody who died in the war and they're all um they're all happy in the afterlife and they're all shaking hands and and hugging each other and hugging it out in the afterlife and he gives he gives uh you know dhritarashtra sight to see that and to see that to have that vision and he gives everyone there all the survivors they're given this vision that he that he offers them i just thought and 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 then thinking to myself that you know vyasa is also the progenitor of all of these people in, in you know he's the sort of you know the progenitor of them and he's going to be the author of them as well of their of their of the account of them i just thought this was the most beautiful and kind of um just redemptive and noble and and almost consoling thing consoling moment in the epic after so much bloodshed and carnage uh on kurukshetra that it it's just it was just something so profound and it was also it illuminated for me the heroic age ethos that i was talking about earlier where there is not this intense demonization of the enemy into pure good on our side pure evil on your side which is something that you also see in homer where hector is defeated but he's noble in defeat and the greeks are victorious but they're not necessarily perfect and they're not you know and achilles is glowing and powerful but he's not necessarily morally perfect as well just and even though you know they say history is written by the victors but and that's why you know the losing side is always so profoundly demonized but that's that's us and when the ancients wrote their epics the the losing side was not demonized in defeat and it wasn't as though um everything the victors did became good and noble and pure and and i thought and i and i and i feel like that the vision of the sons was a perfect encapsulation in a single moment it was a perfect encapsulation of that broad-minded forgiving and above all understanding or comprehending mindset and there's a french saying to comprendre c'est tout pardonner which is to com comprehend everything is to forgive everything and i think i think to a certain extent the vision of the sun that that particular sequence that particular event that particular scene it has that feel to me and i don't think it it redeems the evil or the adharma that that the kaurava is engaged in it doesn't it doesn't try and whitewash that it doesn't try and pretend like that was all okay but it does have this this sense of understanding everything and and forgiving everything which i i find very beautiful and very moving true that, that that's a very interesting anecdote uh, amit I, i i had a very great time reading your book i i thank you so I, much I, for reading I, it i'm i'm touched i'm i'm honored i'm honored yeah and 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 it's always interesting because you know, i'm i'm more like a bare bones guy i just read the text and leave it as it is and that's about it and then i try to find my own meaning of the text or mm -hmm. critique of the text whichever way somebody wants to look at it and so i i always uh, find this exercise interesting whether it's your book or whether it was ami ganatra's book also you know mahabharat mm -hmm. on the mahabharat i always find it very interesting on why people pick certain bits you know mm -hmm. why why did you pick this story vis-a-vis mm -hmm. -vis that story and mm -hmm. like these things i mean at the end of the day you never 
get into the mind of the author completely but i i i enjoyed reading your book and 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 i and i wish you all the best for the entire trilogy and uh, hopefully you know looking forward to reading more and more of your work thank you so much for having me thank you so much all right guys we'll wrap today's podcast up so once again if you're watching this on youtube in the description of the podcast or listening to this on on spotify itunes wherever you are on the audio platforms you will see the link to buy amit's book in the description of the podcast so you know go ahead do your thing you can also follow, follow amit on x twitter whatever you want to call it uh, i have left his twitter handle in the description of the podcast now if you want to support this podcast this podcast runs on membership so please become a member whether it's on patreon or on youtube or on fanmo for indians you can also send your donations to upi buy the merch on kushalmehra.com or kadak merch or if you can't do anything just like this video subscribe to the channel leave a comment in the comment section tell me maybe in the comment section can you guys tell me excerpts from the mahabharat that you have enjoyed and if you're like a audio listener just leave a rating on whatever audio platform you like i'll see you guys next time until then namaste take care goodbye